Good morning and welcome, church. Good to see you all this morning. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new here, welcome. I hope you'll consider filling out one of the Connect cards in front of you. We'd love to get to know you, answer any questions you have. You can do that either by filling it out physically or scan the QR code on the other side, and you can find an online version of that Connect card. You can find information about our events and so on. We would just love to uh, get to know you and welcome you to this great little family of ours. We are a little bit like Loki of Asgard from the Marvel movies, if you know him. Because, hang on, here's why. We too have a glorious purpose. Here's our purpose as a church. I would argue ours is better. We seek to embody the gospel in all of life in the Arcadia area. We we are gospel-centered, outward-focused. We believe all of life is all for Jesus. You might think in the kind of more recent, let's just call it decline of the Marvel movies, that those references would die out. No, not happening. We are a little bit, Marvel fans these days are a little bit like New England Patriots fans. Now, we remember when it used to be so good and we're kind of hanging in, hanging in there for that day again. I just have one announcement for us this morning and it coincides with our New Year's Eve service time. Does everyone remember that on Sunday, December 31st, we are only doing a 10 a.m. service? That's it. If that's news to you, you might want to write that down because there is no 7.30 or 9 o'clock or 10.45 service on the 31st. So make sure you make a note of that. Our announcement is that before that service, before the 10 a.m. service, our prayer ministry led by Malia Rogers would like to do a prayer walk around the campus to pray over the church, to pray over the homes and businesses in this area. And I'll say we've done these type, I've participated in this type of thing before. And it's really sweet, it's simple, it's over really quickly, but but it kind of feels like getting the battle lines ready for ministry, it's a sweet thing. So if you are a parent of young kids, this is for you too, there's something really sweet about hearing young kids pray for the church and the ministry of the church, that's a sweet thing. So if you'd like to join us for that, it's from nine o'clock to 9.30 on Sunday, December 31st. So we'll be done in time for you to still check in your kids or um, grab coffee, anything like that. Malia's gonna take care of it and make sure we know where to go and what to do and all that stuff. So I hope you'll consider joining us for the New Year's Eve prayer walk around the campus. If you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today comes from Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As you take your seats, would you pray with me? Lord, what a stunning text. What a beautiful picture, retelling of your gospel story, Lord. I pray that the beauty of your words here would strike a deep chord within us this morning, Lord, that for the Christians here, that we would leave 
changed more like you, Jesus. For anyone here who has not put their faith in you or is holding something back, Holy Spirit, bear down the truth of your word on the hearts in this room this morning, Lord. We want to be like you. Um, Holy Spirit, would you do that work in us? Show us the beauty of this passage of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Yeah, please take your seats. Advent week two is here. And in this season, we are looking at the incarnation of Jesus. Specifically, we're looking at it through the lens of the Trinity, asking the question, how is each member of the Trinity involved in the incarnation of Jesus? We worship a Trinitarian God, a God being of the same essence, the same person, but three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And throughout the Bible, the Trinity is revealed in all the works of God. From creation to final recreation, all three members of the Trinity are involved in working in time and in the world. But there's one event where all three persons of the Godhead operate together, but one person takes on a new nature. That's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The crescendo of the gospel, the jewel of our faith, Jesus took on flesh. In this, we see a person of the eternally existing Trinity taking on a new permanent state for the first time. It's incredible. Last week, Pastor Frank taught on the Father's role in the incarnation, and this week we look at the Son. If the gospel story, and you might hear us use that word a lot, what we mean is the word of God which we read and which we hold, which tells of Jesus' promised arrival, his birth, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, if the gospel is like a crown on the head of God, then these verses that we're going to look at are surely a prominent jewel on that crown. This text that we're going to read further has stunned readers for 2,000 years. It's thought to be a hymn or a poem of the time that Paul used here to help make his argument. And if you know me, you know I love a good poem. If we've hung out long enough, eventually I'm going to read you something that I read recently by Thomas Hardy or something like that. Not the actor. He's not a poet that I know of. We're talking about the late 1800 author and and poet Tom Hardy. This text is often referred to as the hymn of Christ, his song. It's a section of scripture, the thought of which begins in actually chapter 1, verse 27 where Paul introduces this new idea, this new argument he's building towards, which includes our section. And he gives us this kind of statement that he's working towards, and it's this, that we Christians ought to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. The gospel, of course, as we said, is simply the story of Jesus. All that he did, it's his story. So we talk about the gospel a lot around here. I hope, as a part of our church, you would say that the gospel is the center of our church. But here, Paul is encouraging us to make it also the center of our lives. That's what he's arguing. Tony Merida has a commentary in which he says this, and and a few of us got to see Tony speak recently at uh, Phoenix Seminary. It was really great. Here's what he says. In Philippians 2... Paul exhorts the Philippians to adopt Jesus' death as their central outlook, their central mindset 
for life. And this is important. He says, instead of living to get and get and get more women, more praise, more money, the Christian is called to imitate Christ who came to give and give and give. In fact, church, that's the more blessed, more fulfilling, more deeply satisfying way to live, to imitate Christ and give and give and give. Mark 10.45 reminds us that even Jesus, even God, didn't come to be served. If anyone could have, it'd be the Son of God himself. But no, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we model that same self-sacrificial humility towards others, we follow a path to that better life that we all want. We see what Jesus does. We follow him. We try to do what he did. This is the way to the hope and the peace and the joy and the love that we talk about in this Advent season. And this very thought of imitating Christ is how Paul begins with verses 5 through 7 of the hymn of Christ. Let's read 5 through 7 again together. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul starts in verse 5 by encouraging the church, you and I, to have the same mind. Now, he echoes that over and over. If If you read backwards in Philippians 2 and 1, all the way back up to 127. That's what he keeps saying over and over. Have the same mind. Be unified. Be one. He gives different variations on the main point, which he said was to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is how we do it, by having the same mind as he did. What mind is that? And specifically, verses 6 and 7, Paul makes the point in a word, humility. That's the mind that we should share. Jesus humbled himself. And this is an active humility, not passive. It's not mental only. It's not as if uh, Jesus being praised goes, oh, come on, this is a team effort. It's you, it's you, oh, come on. It's not that kind of humility. This isn't just about having the right mentality with your coworkers. This is the way you act towards them. You act humbly to them. The way you serve them, that kind of humility. That's what Jesus is, is showing. Our series meant to highlight the action of each member of the Trinity in the Incarnation. The becoming flesh, becoming human of Jesus. Here's Jesus' contribution. He humbled himself. If there's one prominent way Jesus acted in the Trinity, in the Incarnation, is that he humbled himself. Paul jumps immediately into how, and think of this from kind of the top-down kind of way. So in verses 6 and 7, what we read, from the top, he was in the form of God. He was part of the Trinity. He wasn't created. He eternally existed in perfect unity with the Father and the Spirit. But verse 6 says he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Isn't that interesting phrasing there? Meaning here, if you dig in, it means snatched or held on too tightly. It's this closed-fisted kind of grasping. 
holding on tight to the eternal fact of his equality with God. Instead, no, he opened up his hands. Verse 7 says, he emptied himself. He took on the form of a doulos, a servant, the lowest position in the household, in society. And don't let the shocking nature of that be lost on you. It would be more natural to read, Jesus humbled himself, he lowered himself by taking on the form of an earthly king. From God to king, pretty far down the totem pole already, right? That alone would have been a shocking act of humility. But no, Jesus knew his people didn't need that kind of king. He took the form of a servant. That's shocking. And now this verse, this emptied himself verse, has been used to misunderstand the nature of Jesus' humanity at times. There's a few wrong turns you can make when you hear that he emptied himself. What does that mean exactly? What does it mean? What did he empty himself of? Is he emptying himself of his divine nature? Therefore, maybe as Jesus, as human, he's not fully God in that time. And then when he's raised, he gets that back. Is he emptying himself of his power, being in fact unable to save himself as he was so mocked on the cross? We can stand on the shoulders of those giants of church history and say, no, we can clarify Jesus doesn't empty himself of his divine nature, but of his status. He deprived himself of what was rightfully and eternally his by taking on flesh, being born as a man. That's the kind of emptying. He took on a new permanent state of humanity. And look at the the eternity shifting that happens in verse 7 as you look at it again. Verse 7, eternity shifts That the God of heaven emptied himself and took on the form of a servant in the likeness of men. Eternity, the eternal reality of who Jesus is in the Trinity changes right there. This is huge. Verse 8 of chapter 2, Paul continues. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, Anybody in here, and you don't have to show hands, when someone asks you, hey, what's your story? Tell me your story. How many of your stories include an element of, and that's when I hit rock bottom? Whatever that is. And everyone's rock bottom might be a little bit different there, but you might say, okay, so if life is graded on a bell curve, mine's upside down, I'm actually at the bottom of that, that bell curve. It's usually in the negative sense, right? I ran my life into the ground until I had nothing left, no relationships. Well, this, what we just read, verse 8, is Jesus' rock bottom. This death on a cross. The cross being reserved for the worst of the worst. Utterly humiliating, dehumanizing, animalistic, torturous. And Paul, the writer here, had a huge problem with the cross. He could not get his head around that. It was actually a barrier to his faith for a time. His knowledge of God had no paradigm for a Messiah that would die on a cross. How how can that be? That doesn't make sense. Paul calls it the mystery of the cross, the mystery of the humiliation of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus had no relationships left. Everyone abandoned him. God himself looked away. He had nothing left. Do you know 
that Jesus can even relate to your rock bottom. He can relate. It doesn't scare him. In fact, many of you Christians here who have gone through that season and and seen the other side of that, you know full well that's where Jesus can do some of his best work. Right? When you throw up your hands and you say, I'm out of ideas. I got nothing left. Nothing's working. Does Advent season for some of us feel a little like that? Maybe in our lives, maybe in this season, we, we feel a little bit of this loss of what could have been, what was, what isn't now. We feel that lack. Maybe you're experiencing some version of that. And if that's you, I would say Jesus sees you. He knows your heart. In fact, he's right there with you. For the Christian, he's within you. And if that's you, I hope that this community is one where we would see you and invite you in and say, you don't have anywhere to be? Come, come be with me. Come be with my family. But even if that doesn't happen, here's your real hope if that's you. Resurrection is coming. Exaltation is coming. Psalm 30 says, sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So maybe not now, maybe not in this life, but your joy will be restored to overflowing for you, Christian, here. Morning will come. And through Jesus, you can taste that joy now, even in the sorrow of the season, if that's what you're experiencing. And if that's you, in fact, to everyone, I would say in here, just you wait and see what Jesus has in store for you. If you put your faith in him now for the first time or the hundredth time, just you wait. And see what kind of exaltation Jesus has in mind. Verse 8 continues Jesus' downward trajectory from God to man, from man to servant, from servant to death, and not just any death, death on a cross. Specifically, it says Jesus was obedient to the cross, humble obedience. Does that sound like any king you can think of? Humble obedience. Jesus is the only one. But Jesus' mourning, his resurrection, his exaltation comes in the next verses, 9 through 11. It's said that these verses are, in fact, one long sentence in the Greek. And it starts with a therefore, because Paul's building this argument, right? So he says, because Jesus humbled himself, therefore, here we see his next words, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A few things here. Notice that it's God that's doing the exaltation. Jesus did the humbling. God is doing the exalting. And if we are to follow Jesus, we're to do that same active work of humbling ourselves towards others. In every situation, asking, what is the lowest position I can take here? That's radically different than the way we might be living or the way the world would say to live. And in doing that, we will be exalted too, like Jesus. Now, this isn't transactional, though. God doesn't owe you that. He promises you that. Whether, or not, whether in this life or the life to come, for the Christian, 
who humbles himself for the sake of Christ, he will be exalted in the end. But not quite like Jesus, because if you caught that here, Jesus is bestowed, he's given a new name, a name that is above every name. Now you might look at that and go, is there some heavenly name that's maybe not recorded that we don't know? Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 gives us some color commentary on what's meant here. It's not that Jesus gets a new name in the sense we might think of, but a new title. In Ephesians 1, verse 20, Paul's in mid-thought, we kind of dive in here, that he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The new name that Jesus received from God in his exaltation is Lord Jesus Christ. Lord of lords, king of kings, because his mission was accomplished. So God gave him this new name, this title. And notice this upward trajectory now, being given by God after Jesus' downward humility. Again, Jesus took on flesh, became a servant, was obedient to death, and therefore God has exalted given him a new name. He is Lord of all. How famous is the name Jesus in the world? Everyone knows that name. Almost. A lot of, I mean, everyone that I interact with knows the name, whether they agree with him or not. Everyone everywhere will know his name. I get the sense that Paul is balancing a familiarity with God Available to us because of Jesus' work. We can call Jesus our Lord, our personal Lord. We can cry out, Abba, Father, to him. And yet we, should, we shouldn't lose this sense of awe and wonder at the King of kings and Lord of lords. It should be this feeling when we think of the intimacy of God and the awe of his power. It should be this sense of awe similar to if, if your favorite celebrity walked in. And you'd go, oh my gosh, is that so-and-so? Oh my gosh. You know, to get that whispering, that sense of awe. I moved here from L.A. seven years ago. Yes, California, I know. Go easy. My son was born there, but I, I lived there for a while to work at this church in Hollywood for four years. And in L.A., this is what you got to do when you see a celebrity. Be cool. Don't overreact. Don't try to get your phone out and bother them with pictures. Just be cool. Play it off. That's how you can tell who the locals are, okay? Because they're acting cool and everyone else is like, oh my gosh, just like harassing them basically. So yes, when in my time in LA, I hung out with Chris Pratt once at the Burbank airport. It was no big deal. (laughs) To be clear, to be clear by hang out, I mean, I saw him, I walked past him and I kind of (laughs) sat far away from him, but I could still see him, you know. And all the non-LA people there were getting their phone out and he was with his family and you just feel bad for him getting harassed like that. Kristen Stewart and I hung out. We got coffee together once at H Coffee. By that I mean she walked in and picked up a coffee and walked out while I was there working. But did I freak out when I saw her? No, I was cool. I was cool. Kristen Shaw, Jimmy Kimmel, you get the idea. I was cool like a good LA local. Outwardly, at least. Inwardly, I was like, oh my gosh, that's Star-Lord. Okay, Chris Pratt. Okay, okay. 
Don't freak out. Don't freak out. Be cool. If the highly exalted Jesus, the Lord of Lords, knows me, knows you, knows what you're going through, and wants to walk through it with you, that's that sense I think Paul's after. If Chris Pratt had actually come up to me and said, hey, Tyler, right? How are you doing? Anything I can do for you? Can I pray with you? Anything like that? It'd be that kind of sense. That's what Paul is, I think, trying to do, balancing this sense of awe at the Lord Jesus with the intimacy of his friendship that's available to us. Verses 10 through 11 give us this, I mean, we just finished Revelation. Did you get this sense of this kind of end times eschatology feel of this one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and acknowledge this new name, this new title of the Lord Jesus. Some, I hope, those in here today will bow and confess in praise and adoration. Others, I hope none of us here today, will bow and confess in despair and dread. But all will bow and all will confess. So if we look at this humility of Jesus and our invitation, I think Paul would say his plea, he's using every rhetorical device he has access to to convince us to be of the same mind, unified together in humility. As we've discussed, you could say that Jesus' action or involvement in the Trinitarian act of the Incarnation was his humility. John Stott says this, At every stage of our Christian development, so think about that for a second, our Christian development, this moment where we accept Christ to the moment we die, this growth process at every stage, And in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, okay, so think about that, every relationship along the way, he says pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. I jokingly referenced Loki of Asgard from the Marvel movies when we started. Loki is one of Marvel's longest-running character arcs. And without spoiling anything for you in season two, some of you are like, don't worry about that. You can spoil it away. I don't don't care. Loki's story spans 12 years of film seeking to answer the question of his glorious purpose. Is what he says all the time. I'm burdened with glorious purpose, but he's searching for what that is. He tries to find that by grasping at power, demanding his place as a king, as a god, trying at all costs to get and get and get wealth, power, authority. At the end... What he's left with is the realization that all he's done is leave a string of broken people and broken relationships in his wake. Here's the point at the end of all this. He finds his ultimate purpose in humility. That's literally the takeaway of the entire arc. The show ends with Loki spending his days in sacrificial and humble, hidden service to humanity. And the last thing we see of him is a smile on his face. He found it. He found this glorious purpose he was looking for. Instead of get and get and get, he gives and gives and gives. Why does Marvel find that storyline so compelling that it would spend that amount of time and money to tell you that story? I would argue because it touches something deeper in us. It hits on a universal truth, 
And yes, it's using a medium and a character that not everyone will resonate with. Some of you don't know what Loki is at all. That's fine. Here's the point. It touches on a truth in us, I would argue, placed by God. That a life lived in service and humility towards others is a life that's admirable. That's a life well spent. And a life lived in seeking more power and fame and wealth and pleasure and experiences is ultimately unfulfilling. Not a life worth following, emulating. Jesus' life is worth following. Jesus gives us a story to think about this week, to kind of take with us this kind of new lens to view whatever we're going to face this week. He gives it to us in Luke 14, verse 7. You can turn there if you'd like. It'll be up on the screen as well. This is the parable of the wedding feast. You might be familiar with this. Luke describes for us, Now he, Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited to this wedding when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them. So just think about the context here. Jesus was invited to this wedding. He walks in. He sees all the best seats taken. Just clocks that, notices that, okay? And then speaks up in this wedding and tells this story that we're about to read. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. Imagine the interruption in this wedding scene. He's just telling this story. Everyone's like, are you talking about me? I took the good seat. Are you talking about me? And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. Can you get up? I've got this other guy I want to sit. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, hey, friend, move up here higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Verse 11, he summarizes so well. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a new lens to look at, whatever you're going to face this week. Asking the question, what does humility look like right now? How could I take that, that furthest seat, the place of lowest honor? How could I take that now? What a different way fundamentally to think than the world around us or our nature, if we're honest, right? If you come to our Wednesday night studies, we get the round tables. The seats that fill up the first are the ones that are backwards where you don't have to turn the chair around to see. The seats that are kind of, you have to sit awkwardly, those are the last to fill up. Paul's desperate plea for the unity in the church is found in the humility of Jesus. Unity in the church is the result of humility in her people. Have this same mind in you, Paul says. Instead of grasping for power, like Jesus, leverage it for the good of others. Let's empty ourselves and Choose to be servants. Choose to lower ourselves like Jesus. In this season, let's be obedient to God like Jesus. When we read something in his word that doesn't look like our lives, let's obey God and his word. Let's humble ourselves. Like Jesus, let's die to ourselves in this season. Let's die to our will 
and carry our cross daily. For Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Would you pray with me? Lord God, humble us under your mighty hand. Lord, show us in the grand scheme of things, faced with the lordship of Christ, where we really stand. Show us that, Lord. And for many of us in our lives, we have tried over and over to change. Lord, we know we need your Holy Spirit for that work, so we we invite you in, Lord. We plead with you, Holy Spirit. Take up residence in us and make us more into this image of humility. We can know with our minds that that's the right thing, but our our actions don't often follow it, Lord Jesus. We submit to you at your timing and to your will. Make us into this image of Jesus. Humble us, Lord. We open ourselves up to that. We invite you in. And Lord, for the Christian here, we invite that work. We want to be like you, Jesus. It's your beauty that we behold. We We want to be like you, Lord. And for the person here who has not put their faith in you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would use whatever means, Holy Spirit, to bear down the truth of your word in hearts this morning. Lord, don't let us walk away without facing this reality, without giving an answer for these things. That the way of Christ is the way of humility, and it is that better life that maybe we came here wanting. How can I find that better life? This is it. It's you, Jesus. You are that better life. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.